Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 42nd installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. The 133 presentations made by Pope John Paul II between the years 1979 and 1984. We are indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we are using has committed adultery in the heart, a key change of direction. In our analysis, we have come to the third part of Christ's statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. The first part was, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. The second part, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, is grammatically connected with the third part, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The method used here, that of dividing, of breaking Christ's statements into three parts that follow each other may seem artificial, yet when we seek the ethical meaning of the whole statement in its totality, the division of the text that we used can be helpful as long as we do not merely set the pieces apart but bring them together and this is what we intend to do each of the distinct parts has its own content and connotations that are specific to it and this is precisely what we want to show by the division of the text but at the same time one should point out that each of the parts must be explained in direct relation with the others this point holds in the first place for the main semantic elements through which the statement constitutes a whole here are the elements to commit adultery to desire to commit adultery in the body and to commit adultery in the heart it would be particularly difficult to identify the ethical meaning of desire without the last element, adultery in the heart. The analysis above has, to some degree, already considered this element. Still, a fuller understanding of the component, to commit adultery in the heart, is possible only after a separate analysis. As we said already at the beginning, the meaning we are looking for is the ethical meaning. See Theology of the Body 34.2. Christ's statement in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, takes as its starting point the commandment, You shall not commit adultery, to show how it is to be understood and put into practice, so that the justice willed by God, Yahweh, as legislator, might abound in it, so that it might abound in a measure greater than the one resulting from the interpretation and casuistry of the teachers of the Old Testament. If Christ's words intend in this sense to build a new ethos on the basis of the same commandment, the road to this aim passes through the rediscovery of the values that had been lost in the general understanding of the Old Testament and in the application of this commandment. From this point of view, the formulation of the text of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 is significant as well. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is formed as a prohibition that categorically excludes a certain moral evil. In addition to you shall not commit adultery, the same law, the Decalogue, contains also the prohibition, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife, Exodus chapter 20, verses 14 and 17, 
Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 18 and 21. Christ does not make one commandment pointless in favor of another. Although he speaks about desire, he aims at a deeper clarification of adultery. It is significant that after quoting the prohibition, you shall not commit adultery, as a prohibition known to his audience, he changes his style and logical structure in what follows in the course of his statement, from normative to narrative affirmative. When he says whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, he describes an inner fact, the reality of which can be easily understood by his audience. At the same time, through the fact described and qualified in this way, he shows how the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, should be understood in order to lead to the justice willed by the legislator. We have thus reached the expression, has committed adultery in the heart, which seems to be the key expression for understanding its correct ethical meaning. This expression is, at the same time, the main source for revealing the essential values of the new ethos, the ethos of the Sermon on the Mount. As is often the case in the Gospel, here too we are faced with a certain paradox. How, in fact, can adultery take place without committing adultery? That is, without an external act that allows one to identify the act prohibited by the law. We have seen to what degree the casuistry of the teachers of the law attempted to give an account, exact account of this problem. Quite apart from casuistry, however, it seems evident that adultery can only be identified in the flesh, that is, when the two, the man and the woman who unite with each other in such a way that they become one flesh, see Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, are not spouses, that is, husband and wife in the legal sense. What possible meaning can adultery committed in the heart thus have? Is this not a merely metaphorical expression used by the teacher to emphasize the sinfulness of concupiscence? A first reading. If we granted such a semantic reading of Christ's statement, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, we would have to reflect deeply about the ethical consequences that would follow from it, that is, about the conclusions concerning the ethical order of behavior. Adultery occurs when the man and the woman who unite with each other so as to become one flesh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that is, in a manner proper to spouses, are not spouses in the legal sense. The identification of adultery as a sin committed in the body is strictly and exclusively tied to the external act, to shared conjugal life, which is related also to the state of life of the acting persons recognized by society. In the case before us, this state of life is inappropriate and does not authorize such an act, hence precisely the term adultery. Moving on to the second part of Christ's statement, in which the configuration of the new ethos begins, one would have to understand the expression, whoever looks at a woman to desire her 
only in reference to persons according to their civil state of life recognized by society, that is, whether they are married or not. Here the questions begin to multiply, since there is no doubt that Christ points to the sinfulness of the interior act of concupiscence expressed by the act of looking at any woman who is not the wife of the one who looks at her in this way, we can and even must ask if, by the same expression, he allows and approves such a look, such an interior act of concupiscence, when it is directed toward the woman who is the wife of the man who looks at her in this way. An argument in favor of an affirmative answer seems to be the following logical premise. In our case, only the man who is the potential subject of adultery in the flesh can commit adultery in the heart, since this subject cannot be a married man in relation to his own legitimate wife, adultery in the heart cannot refer to him, but one can ascribe it as a fault in the case of every other man. If he is the husband, he cannot commit it in relation to his own wife. Only he has the exclusive right to desire to look with concupiscence at the woman who is his wife and can never say that on account of such an interior act, he deserves being accused of adultery committed in the heart. If, in virtue of marriage, he has the right of uniting with his wife so that the two will be one flesh, one can never call this act adultery. By analogy, the interior act of desire, which the Sermon on the Mount speaks about, cannot be defined as adultery committed in the heart, See Theology of the Body 25.4. This interpretation of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27-28 seems to correspond to the logic of the Decalogue, which contains the commandment, You shall not desire your neighbor's wife, ninth commandment. In addition to the commandment, You shall not commit adultery, sixth commandment. Besides the reasoning in support of this interpretation has all the characteristics of objective correctness and accuracy. Nevertheless, there are fundamental doubts whether this reasoning takes into account all the aspects of revelation and the theology of the body that should be considered, above all, when we want to understand Christ's words. We have already seen some time ago the great specific weight of these words, the wealth of the anthropological and theological implications of the one sentence in which Christ goes back to the beginning. See Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. The anthropological and theological implications of the statement in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Christ appeals to the human heart, give also to that statement its own specific gravity and make it consistent with the teaching of the gospel as a whole. For this reason, we must admit that the interpretation presented above, despite all its objective correctness and logical precision, needs to be broadened and, above all, deepened. We must remember that the reference to the human heart, expressed perhaps in a paradoxical way, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, comes from him who knew what was in every man, John chapter 2, verse 25. 
And while his words confirm the commandments of the Decalogue, not only the sixth, but also the ninth, they express at the same time the knowledge about man that allows us, as we emphasized elsewhere, see Theology of the Body 4.3, to unite the awareness of human sinfulness with the perspective of the redemption of the body, see Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Precisely, such knowledge stands at the basis of the new ethos that emerges from the words of the Sermon of the Mount. Taking all of this into account, we conclude that, just as in the understanding of adultery in the flesh, Christ criticizes the erroneous and one-sided interpretation of adultery that stems from the failure to observe monogamy, that is, marriage understood as the indefectible covenant of persons, and also in the understanding of adultery in the heart. Christ takes into consideration not only the real juridical state of life of the man and the woman in question, Christ makes the moral evaluation of desire depend above all on the personal dignity of the man and the woman. And this is important both in the case of unmarried persons and perhaps even more so in the case of spouses, husband and wife. From this point of view, we should complete the analysis of the words from the Sermon on the Mount, and we shall do so next time. And with these words, Pope John Paul II concludes his 42nd Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. It's important for us to remember that here we have Pope John Paul II presenting to us Christ's appeal to the human heart. We remember the motto of John Henry Cardinal Newman, Corad Cor Loquitur, Heart Speaks to Heart. The Sacred Heart of Jesus appealing to us through the heart of Karl Wojtyla, the Universal Shepherd of the Church for 27-some years. Christ was not preaching to the fish of the sea or the trees of the forest. He was preaching, appealing to human beings. He was a man among men, and he knows us from the inside out. Whoever looks upon another with desire, the disordered desire, the lustful desire, has already committed adultery in the heart. And he calls us to be pure of heart. This is his commandment, building upon the commandments once given through Moses on Sinai's height. This is the ethos of the gospel, the New Testament. Christ has not come to abolish the law nor the prophets, but to fulfill them and to give us the grace to be faithful to them, to be faithful to the call to holiness. Christ our Lord warns us, and Pope John Paul the same, to not commit adultery in our hearts. Here we see a change of direction, not merely don't commit adultery, but don't even commit adultery in your heart. This is implied even already in the ninth commandment, not to covet your neighbor's wife or husband as the case might be. The Spanish version of the Ninth Commandment is perhaps even more precise. No hay deseos impuros. Do not have impure desires. Pope John Paul II, in this 42nd Catechesis, presents us with a first reading of this passage, which is to imply that there will be at least a second, and there is. Three parts, four elements. The three parts 
which Pope John Paul II recognizes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, are as follows. Part 1, you shall not commit adultery. Part 2, whoever looks at a woman to desire her. Part 3, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look at these three parts. One passage of scripture, three different, three distinct parts. You shall not commit adultery. Well, that's the commandment. That's the sixth commandment. We know that from Moses. We know that from the Old Testament. Whoever looks at a woman to desire her. This is based on our experience. I was not on Mount Sinai, but perhaps I have seen someone with a wolfish gaze or a wolfish desire or have had it myself. Whoever looks at a woman to desire her. It's distinct has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's like an explanation of what's behind that desirous look. And it ties back to the first part. You shall not commit adultery, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You shall not commit adultery, adultery in the body, adultery in the heart, interior, exterior, adultery. Either way, they're prescribed, they're forbidden. They're contrary to the truth, the dignity of the human person. They're against holy chastity. It's against modesty. These are three parts of this one passage of sacred scripture, which Pope John Paul II focuses our attention on in this 42nd Catechesis. These are the words of Christ. Christ, who is the Word made flesh. Pope John Paul II not only highlights three parts, he also highlights four elements in this one passage from St. Matthew Chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. The four elements are this. The first element, to commit adultery. The second element, to desire. The third element, to commit adultery in the body. The fourth element, to commit adultery in the heart. To commit adultery. Do we know what that means? That means someone who is married to somebody is engaging in sexual activity with someone with whom they're not married. That's adultery. It's an exterior act to commit adultery. It implies marriage between one man and one woman. Adultery is not fornication. Adultery is not sodomy. Those are different things. And those, likewise, are sins against chastity, sins against modesty, sins against purity. And Christ calls us to be pure of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. That's the Beatitudes. And the contrawise is true. If we're not pure of heart... We shall not see God either in the here and now or in the hereafter. We got some good news. We got some bad news. The good news, God loves us. The good news, God calls us to himself. The good news, God gives us the grace we need to be saints. But the bad news is the Lord does not force us to love him or to be with him forever in the next. The time for our good choices, for our correct choices, our choices for God is here and now. To desire, the second of the four elements. To commit adultery, the first. To desire, the second. Desires are good. Can be. Do you desire a good night's sleep? Do you desire a good meal? Do you desire to know the truth? Those are all fine desires. Desire to be holy. But there could be disordered desires. I desire to be a lazy bones, to sleep the day away. I desire to be a glutton, to eat anything and everything I can get my hands on. I could have a disordered desire to be a lustful man, or you to be lustful yourselves. These would be disordered desires. To commit adultery in the body. This is the third of the fourth elements John Paul II is recognizing in this passage 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. To commit adultery in the body, to corporally act out sexually with someone to whom I am not married, for you to do the same with someone who to whom you are not married, to commit adultery in the body, the actual act, which is distinct from the fourth element, to commit adultery in the heart, interior or exterior acts. They're different, but neither of them are good. Neither of them are right nor righteous. Christ is forbidding both of them. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks with desire upon the woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This, together with the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure of heart, the beatitude, shows us the new ethos, the ethos of the gospel, Pope John Paul II has divided up, has broken up this one passage of sacred scripture in order to understand the pieces and to help us to understand the pieces. Because if we understand the pieces individually and together, then we understand the words of Christ, Christ who is the Word made flesh, Christ who reveals to us not only the Father, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, but who also reveals us to ourselves because he is not only true God, but true man, a man among men. This is Pope John Paul II's deep analysis, which is just one component of the theology of the body. Pope John Paul II brings to bear upon the sacred scripture the powers of his natural intelligence. He recognizes the logical structure. This is how it's spelled out. These are the parts. He identifies that it, there are norms presented. You shall not commit adultery. That's a norm. That's an ethical command. Do this, don't do that. But he also recognizes, using his natural intelligence, that not only is there a norm presented, you shall not commit adultery, he also recognizes what he calls a narrative affirmative command. Whoever looks with desire has already committed adultery in his heart. He affirms through the narrative a norm not to commit adultery in the heart. Pope John Paul II is very clever here, and he brings to bear his studies, which he had done even before he was the Bishop of Rome, when he was a professor of ethics at the Catholic University of Lublin in Poland. He recognizes the new ethos, the ethos of the Sermon on the Mount, not just the commandments on Sinai, not just the Beatitudes, but all his words and all his deeds and all his grace, which he gives us, he communicates with us, the Lord Jesus Christ does, through his bride mother church. Grace given first in holy baptism and renewed in the sacrament of penance and deepened in the sacrament of the altar, the Holy Eucharist, his very body and blood. All of this, worship in spirit in truth, glorifying God in our bodies and our souls. For each one of us, is a body-soul composite, whole and entire, destined for the resurrection in God's mercy to heaven. In his justice, there is another destination. Still building on his previous philosophical and ethical studies, Pope John Paul II draws our attention to both external and internal acts prohibited to acting persons by these sacred utterances of Jesus Christ. When John Paul II uses the phrase acting persons, it is intentional. He has as a magnum opus the acting person or person and act. 
the divine persons are in act, they do, and so too are human persons, persons in act. It has a reference to being, the distinction between act and potency, potential doing, potential being. Once one has been conceived, one is in act, humanly speaking. But then there are moral actions which we are able to do based upon the act of our being. Then we are acting persons, choosing well or not, doing well or not. To look upon another with lust, to commit adultery, neither of these are good choices or good actions. They're vicious. They're against the virtue of chastity. They're in league with the vice of lust. Internally and externally, these acts are addressed not only by Karl Wojtyla, not only by Pope John Paul II, but also by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who calls us to be saints, who calls us to be holy, not only in our deeds, but in our desires, our whole self, body and soul. Christ points to the sinfulness of the interior act of concupiscence when he says to not even look with desire upon the other lest we commit adultery in our hearts. To commit adultery in our heart is an interior act of concupiscence, an interior act tending to sin, the sin of lust, the sin degrading the humanity of the other, treating the other as if an object for my pleasure only. Pope John Paul II contrasts casuistic reasoning, reasoning about moral questions and problems, with reasoning which corresponds to the theology of the body, which he is presenting throughout these hundred-plus talks he gave over that five-year period. 1979 to 1984. The casuists are used not as an example of good moral reasoning necessarily. In a certain sense, they try to talk away the good we should do or the evil we should avoid. So you end up with everything's okay. And that's not good reasoning. And that does not correspond with the theology of the body, John Paul II is presenting here, based on the words of Christ, Christ's appeal to the beginning, Christ's appeal to the human heart, Christ's grace, Christ's redemption, how he died on the cross on Good Friday to save us from ourselves, from our sins. It was not just to show how tough or strong he was that the Lord Jesus underwent his saving passion, The reason for it is our salvation. The reason for it is to show the depth of the Father's love, sending the Eternal Son to save us. This, too, is a part of the theology of the body. Pope John Paul II, in this 42nd Catechesis, and in fact throughout his presentations on the theology of the body, is giving a theological and anthropological appreciation of the words of Jesus Christ, who refers to the beginning. When the Lord Jesus Christ refers to the beginning, it's also in view of the end, of eternity, 
that day without end, whose dawn is just begun when Christ was conceived and born of Mary. The true light came upon the earth then, and we await his return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his return is sure on a day at an hour we do not know. Our task is to be ready, should that last day of history come during our lifetimes, or should he call us to himself at least for judgment even before then. If we take to heart the teaching of Pope John Paul II, man and woman, he created them a theology of the body. It will go well with us on the judgment day. Until next time, God bless you.